0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the Gospel. Those of you who are new to Woodside, welcome. Thanks for those of you joining online this morning. My name is Joel. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I'm happy to to uh, bring part six of our eight-part series through the book of 1 Peter. We're calling it Unshakable. And in this first letter of Peter, uh, we have been, or he's been, we've been seeing how Peter is addressing the early church there scattered throughout Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey today. And there are some uh, key themes that I actually want to give... um, a little bit of an overview to show where have we been over the last number of weeks because I think it's helpful to set some context for, for both today and then in some of the specific instructions that Peter's going to have for them as we close out this series and the next couple of weeks. So at the beginning of the letter, Peter refers to them as elect exiles. So elect exiles. So they were elected by God into his family, into his grace and they were living in a context, let's just call it a pagan context. They were living in a place that did not feel right to them as believers. There were some uh, things that would have opposed uh, their, their worldview, and they had to figure out how to navigate and live through that. And, and because of the persecution that they were enduring, uh, Peter reminded them that their hope was fixed on Jesus. Isn't that what we just sang? We sang that to remind ourselves, sometimes over and over and over again, to remind ourselves where our hope ultimately lies. And so that's what Peter started out the letter. Keep your eyes, keep your heart fixed on the fact that in God's good plan and grace, he's going to hold you secure and you have an inheritance that is set in eternity and it's not anything that you do. And the trials that they were experiencing were not accidental. They were opportunities from God's perspective, opportunities for them to demonstrate genuine faith and and to live well and to be strengthened. And in the second half of the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter issued a call to holiness and faithfulness. And he gave them specific instructions of what they were to live like in exile. So there's that word again that he uses, exile. And in chapter two, we learned of his admonition for them to build their life on the cornerstone of Christ. So if they were to start by putting their hope in Christ and then build their life on the cornerstone, on the firm foundation of God, Uh, then um, last week, if you were here or, or watched or listened, Pastor Jacob unpacked a beautiful description, a reality of what their identity was in Christ. And it then flowed into what they were called to do. So he gave them four descriptors, as you'll remember. He called them a chosen race. That is a new kind of people, not in terms of ethnicity or culture, but they were God's people for his own possession. He called them royal priests. So they were part of God's royal family because God is the king. And they were to be emissaries. They were to show the world what he was like. And that's what a priest does. They connect people and Uh, God together, and so he used them as royal priests to do that. He called them a holy nation. So they were to be marked by holiness. We share a common culture of holiness as the church, and we are a people who are in community together, shaped by God. And then lastly, he called them a people for his own possession. So their destiny, their identity, their activity, their purpose, everything was to be found in God and actually to be used for God's purposes, just like their trials. We're not just an accident and not just a hard thing that they had to, to grunt through, but they, they were actually to be used for God's purposes. So today we come to verses 11 and 12, and I invite you, if you've got a copy of, of Scripture, do that. We also have a new thing on, the, on a chair in front of you. You'll see two QR codes, the one on the right. If you scan that with your mobile device, that'll take you to our mobile app, and the text is there, the, the outline for today. We can fill in notes, so It's also on the back of the bulletin, so whatever you want to do, I'm in 1 Peter 2, and I'm going to read just our two verses today, starting with verse 11. Peter writes to them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's Word. So the heart of Peter's argument, what he's trying to, to impress upon these believers in their context is how they're supposed to live and live differently. And he's going to give some instructions and expectations of what that looks like, and we'll get into that. But first, we see a couple of additional identity labels that he lays out at the very beginning of verse 11. And I think it's important and key for for us to understand both for the believers in the first century as well as for us today. And he starts verse 11 by calling them beloved. Now, maybe you grew up with the King James version like I did and we pronounce everything beloved. So I'll just go with beloved for now. So he calls them this, and it's not just because he loves them, although Peter does love them. He calls them beloved because in another translation it says that they are God's dearly beloved children. So in Christ, we are God's beloved, not because we are perfectly reciprocal of that, but because His love makes us beloved. It's rather one-sided, isn't it? It's God who loves us and makes us beloved. In my home, I think, I hope there's great freedom for my kiddos in the fact that they are beloved children of the Tompkinsons. And even at ages five and three respectively, it is crystal clear that their sin nature is at work. They were born with it, nothing we taught them. Well, I guess we have modeled some, some fleshly activities as well, but there's grace for that, you, you get my point. So, there may be a rough day, they, they may treat each other unkindly, they may be unkind to Allie or me, but it doesn't change the fact that they are beloved although we haven't hit middle school yet. So if you have a middle school student, don't say amen out loud, you can think it, but I think think the Lord will sustain us. But the the point that I'm trying to make is whether or not they love me back, whatever their performance is, however they treat me or or Allie, or whether they do this or that, all those factors don't affect the, the, the reality that they are loved and beloved by us, and there is freedom there for them. And the same for us as God's children, those of us who are in Christ. There is great freedom in recognizing that we are beloved by our creator. He sent himself, he sent Jesus to demonstrate that for us. Even in the midst of darkness that we face, we always remember that God cared because he sent himself to fix the problem. So let me remind you of some good news in Christ. We have sung these words this morning. We have looked at these over the last number of weeks, but chapter 1, of 1 Peter 3 says, we've been born again to a living hope. We've been given an inheritance that's imperishable. That is, it will never be stolen or lost or destroyed. Our salvation is guarded by God's power. It's not anything that we do, but He guards it. He's the faithful one. We've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus from futile ways of the world, and they are empty ways. We're chosen, We're priests, we're exiles here because we are citizens of heaven. We are his people. He calls us his own people. Anybody here thankful? The fact that you have been saved and called God's own. Amen. Thank you for interacting. So let me talk for a minute. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of wrestling through this faith thing. You're trying to figure out the Jesus thing out. What is this all about? Well, let me just be honest and say all the promises that I just mentioned are not yours because you have not looked to Jesus for your faith. But they could be, they could be. And my prayer is this morning, as we work through this text, and then if you hang out in in subsequent weeks and you get to know some of our people, that it would be God's good grace to open up your eyes and to help you understand the truth and to put your faith in Jesus so that you would be one of the ones that he names beloved. That would be such a celebration that we we would be honored to live that way and to talk with you about Jesus. Well, Peter also reminds them another identity label, and that's sojourners and exiles. And that's the idea of being a foreigner, of, of being in a, a place, uh, living in a land where you don't have the benefit of citizenship. It's, it's, you're, you're just a stranger. And living as a foreigner is not a new concept to God's people. Scripture is filled with examples of, of that identity for them. And so it I think one of the first ones uh, is in Genesis 47 where you'll remember Jacob who was a patriarch, uh, one of the fathers of the Jewish nation. He and his family, about 75 or so, moved to Egypt to escape famine because there was no food where they were and they needed food to stay alive and so they moved to Egypt and they lived there. They lived in Egypt uh, but they were sojourners, that wasn't really their place and they had babies and they grew and they multiplied and all of a sudden they're a huge nation and many years later and a new king, a new pharaoh, they were enslaved and they lived that way for many, many years as exiles. They were living in a foreign land that was not their own and they didn't have the benefits of it. And God by his grace and in his providence, he used Moses to open up the opportunity for them to leave and so they left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea, we all know those stories, and they lived for 40 years in the desert. They sojourned in the desert. Now remember, many, many years earlier, God had promised Abraham, had promised the nation a place to call their own, their own homeland. And they weren't there yet, so there's this reality that they're living in a place that's not their own. They are sojourning. Once they get to the place that that we know as Israel, the Promised Land, in 2 Kings, we read about the first exile to Babylon. And the initial one was about 10,000 people, where the enemy came in and took about 10,000 people, including members of the royal family, including government officials, including some very skilled craftsmen. So they took the cream of the crop to Babylon to be exiled. And about a decade or so later, enemies came back in, laid Jerusalem waste, and nearly all the rest of the Jews were exiled to Babylon. So they always have had an identity as being exiles. The New Testament opens with the reality that they're living under Roman occupation. Yes, they're in Israel, but they have a sense in which they're foreigners because they're not Roman citizens. They don't have that benefit. They're living under oppression, an oppressive regime. And you'll remember after Jesus resurrected from the dead and he ascended up into heaven, the gospel lit fire in Jerusalem just took off. Thousands coming to Christ. And then persecution came. And all of a sudden, the the disciples of Jesus, those who were following him, these thousands, they get pushed further and further out away from Jerusalem. And the fact is, they carry the identity of being exiles with them. This is not, the cultures that they're moving into, something is not right. It doesn't jive with the faith that they're called to. And so Peter is writing to churches that would, that would have rightly understood the reality that they were resident aliens, immigrants, if you will. In fact, uh, the culture, as one commentator wrote about it, the culture was strongly suspicious of Christians. New religious movements were outlawed in the Roman Empire on the basis of charges that they were hostile to society. So because of their Christian commitment, these believers would have experienced verbal abuse, discrimination, maybe some physical, but at this point definitely discrimination and and verbal abuse. Well, I've spent a lot of time talking about identity because I think it's important for us to see how we are not so different from these first century believers. I don't have time for a deep dive of our nation's 244-year history, but I'll give some notes. At one time in our nation, Christianity was the dominant cultural narrative. It was at the center of society. And we have seen and we continue to see a dramatic shift away from Christianity as that dominant narrative. We have lost our influence in culture and politics and more, and in the public sphere, our faith is being relegated to the fringes as pluralism and and relativism secularism become the major cultural narratives. Now, this may cause you alarm, not wanting to be a Debbie Downer here, but just kind of point out the fact that it may not feel right to you, given the fact that some of our founding documents, you know, the history of our nation, that, that there were some Christian values there. And this morning I want to remind us, because Peter reminds us, that we belong to another kingdom. It's always been God's identity people's identity is being sojourners and exiles. And because of that, we are foreigners wherever we are. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. That's a tricky line to walk, isn't it? But let me encourage you with this. Did you know that the church has actually thrived most when it's on the margins? That's when genuine faith actually shows up is when it's not in the center of power. And some of the reading and studying I did this morning, I was really quite dismayed by examples throughout human history, church history, of examples when religion is interwoven with power. I don't know if you know much about Constantine, but he was called the first Christian emperor. But one historian has written about Constantine, I quote, "...what religion he had was at best a blend of paganism and Christianity for political purposes only." And as Constantine would later claim, Christ himself told him in a dream to take the cross into battle as his standard. Christ didn't actually say that to him, and we know the atrocities of the Crusades that were done in the name of the Church and our Savior. Several years ago, Christianity Today published an article that described the church becoming the persecutor. So you'll remember that at one time, the early church had been persecuted, and all of a sudden there's a flip and they become the persecutor. And so the article says, by the end of the fourth century, when Catholic Christianity had become the established religion of the empire, the way was opened for the persecution of religious minorities. We often think of the founding of our nation, and we celebrate how our religion and freedom were interwoven into the fabric of our nation, and there's some virtuous and noble values for sure. The fathers, some of them God-fearing men though, made some terrible choices that continue to plague us today. Many confessing Christians were unwilling to abolish slavery, for example, and that perpetuated evil in the treatments of minorities that we feel the effects of still. 250 years later, don't we? In our not too distant past, consider the moral majority and the connection between white evangelicals and political leaders. Religious leaders were tired of being discriminated against, so they took the fight to Washington and they built an impressive political machine that lobbied and built connections and enacted legislation. I'm not saying that everything that they did was bad or wrong or that it resulted in bad. But sadly, we have seen examples of Christian leaders who were addicted to power and influence and they compromised because of that proximity to power and they lost their witness for Christ. Even King David warned the nation of Israel about power that they would put in leaders. So let me just say with kindness, but candor that there is no political party, there's no political system or ideology that we can vote in to create a Christian nation. There isn't a political or government structure that can answer the moral and spiritual questions. They can get at some of the externals, but the moral and spiritual issues, which we see clearly in our society today, that there is an answer to that, and it's not structures, it's the gospel. And so, for us as Christ followers, when we identify and we link our affiliation as redeemed people of God who live as resident aliens in this present day, who proclaim and who demonstrate the gospel, that's actually where the church thrives. That's what produces genuine faith. So, am I arguing against civil engagement? Nope, not at all. It's our right here in this democracy, That when we see a wrong, we stand up and we say, this is wrong. We can contact our elected officials. We can pray for, we should pray for our elected officials. That's why we're having the night of prayer this coming Thursday, so that we can pray for God to move, because He will move when we ask Him. We can vote. We can participate in all these things, but the key word is invest. Let's invest ourselves in living in the way of Jesus, rather than worrying, or wondering, or fearing, or failing to secure a particular branch of government, or a seat in Congress, or any other policy win. So when you cast a vote, as you're doing now, either on an absentee ballot through the mail, or in the booth in a week or so, we ask for God's wisdom in our decision making. We honor the values that we see in scripture. We fight and seek for human flourishing and then we manage our expectations. Because if we're either despondent about the election results or we see Washington is the new Jerusalem, then let me just tell you, we have set our hopes on something other than Jesus and we need to way lower the expectations of what Washington or Lansing or any other political or government structure can offer. Let me remind us again, our citizenship is in heaven. And that's why Peter began this book, and he reminds us here that we put our ultimate hope in Christ and only on eternity before us. We are active and engaged, but we put our hope and we work and invest ourselves in God's kingdom. So having said all of that, the apostle Peter encourages and instructs these believers as exiles in the world. And that's where we find our identity as well. And he urges them, he urges us to be Holy. Look at verse 11. He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So, since we find our identity in God, since we're marked by God's rule and his authority in our lives, there are some things that we don't participate in. There are some things that we do participate in. And one of those that we don't is the passions of the flesh. And notice that Peter is actually connecting our bodies, our flesh, with what happens in our souls, that there is a war waging against our souls, and in each and every one of us. I can't see your battle, and you can't see my battle. Only the Lord is aware of how deep and dark and desperate the battle is, or isn't, or if you're not even fighting it. The truth is, sometimes we don't even have the self-awareness to know what's really going on in our hearts. I'm reminded of the exchange in the Garden of Eden between the serpent and Eve, and I just want to read a few verses from Genesis 3. But the serpent said to the woman, "'You will not surely die, "'for God knows that when you eat of it,' that being the fruit that was off limits, "'when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, "'and you will be like God, knowing good and evil.'" So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So Satan promised our first parents freedom without authority. Freedom without authority. His crafty offer was, take it. If you desire it, take it. Enjoy it. You're going to discover that you know and you understand what's best for you. He planted the lie that they'll be free. He said, you won't really die. That's not what is going to happen. God's trying to keep some things from you, and you're going to discover that when you take that bite. But Adam and Eve ended up losing both freedom and authority. They were ultimately kicked out of the garden, but they had some other punishments. The woman would experience pain in childbirth. There was always going to be this relational power struggle tension between the man and the woman in their marriage. The man would have to work hard and he would sweat and toil, and ultimately their bodies were going to die, they weren't going to live forever. The passions of the flesh promise freedom without authority, but they can't, it can't deliver that, that's a lie. The war between the flesh and God's authority continues to be waged within you and me each and every day, and Peter tells us that both because they are God's possession, and because of their, their lives or their souls are at stake, he tells them to win the battle inside or win the battle within. That's, their, that's his challenge to them. And so I wonder this morning, just in the quietness of your own heart, I know there's a lot of other people in the room, but think through your life. Take a quick inventory. What are passions of the flesh that are at war within you? Are you aware of them? Are you acknowledging them? Is there a, a pattern or behavior that needs to put, be put to death? It's, he uses the word abstain, and I'll say, put it to death in your life, because it says that elsewhere in Scripture. Is there a secret or private sin that you're unrepentant of, that you keep holding on to? It's a terrible place to live. I've been there. It takes confession and repentance and awareness You know, our staff team read earlier this year a book by a pastor named John Mark Comer, and he wrote about the fact that Satan is far more intelligent than we like to give him credit for. The struggle between our flesh and our faith may likely be seen, he writes, in the form of an alert on your phone when you're trying to read your Bible, or a multi-day Netflix binge or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram. We just keep scrolling with no end. Or a Saturday morning at the office or another soccer game on a Sunday or commitment after commitment after commitment. Those things can also be the works of the flesh that distract us and take us away from what our mission is. And Peter's point in his admonition is that they're to look different from their surroundings. The culture that they're in, remember, they're supposed to look different from that. They are resident aliens. Don't give in to the cultural norm is what he's telling them. So whatever your sin is, can I rightly define it, is it's not a struggle that you're, you're working through. It's, sin is not a struggle, it's actually rebellion against your heavenly father. And I encourage you, name it, and have a hard conversation with someone in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a mentor, close friend. Maybe it's Pastor Jacob or me. Maybe it's a Christian counselor. But don't be stuck in the shadow of shame and secrecy and passivity. That's a lonely and soul-crushing way to live, and I speak from personal experience. Remember, there's good news. Remember where we began. There is great, great freedom in the fact that you are called beloved. Beloved. And in Romans 8, 1, it reminds us that there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Ask God to increase your affection for him. And you do that by digging into his word. You actually spend time. You make time for him. You ask him to move and to work and to put to death things in your heart that are not of him. So that the fruit that comes up is actually what walks in step with the spirit. You you have visible evidence in your life that people can see that you are walking with His Spirit, and you fight and you pursue holiness each and every day, and that is what it takes to win the battle within. But the Apostle Peter, in verse twelve, tells them that they are also to win the battle outside. He says, "To keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." So I want to call attention to the word "among." Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. He was not calling for these believers to withdraw and just to stay in, to only huddle in a a gathering like this and to stay out of the world and be afraid by it. They weren't to live in a vacuum. Yes, their culture was antagonistic to Jesus and his ways and his people. But there was the expectation, there was the responsibility, there was the opportunity for them to live as salt and light, and to work and interact among these unbelievers. And this was the environment that they were placed into by God's sovereign design. He planned their place of dwelling, and so he was, Peter was saying, lean into that. Live among them, live missionally, pointing to the day of visitation. That is the day that God would visit lost sinners by His grace and open up their hearts and save them. So these Christians were meant to live winsomely and differently. And the, the term he uses, honorable, carries this idea of being beautiful and pleasing and genuine, attractive. So the way that we carry ourselves before unbelieving friends, acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, it actually matters. And so I would ask the question, how's your conduct before them? Actually, I should ask the first question, which is, are you in relationship with unbelievers such that you can have good conduct among them? I mean, remind us that the church, by its very nature, is missional. Like I said, we gather here on Sunday mornings, we, we worship, we call out to God together, we sing, we look at the Word, we're recharged, and, and then we're sent out. We're scattered throughout all the different places that God ordains for us. And it's our mission to see people redeemed and made right before God and connected and restored in relationship to Him. Now, be honest, as a pastor, it can be a challenge at times to to cultivate a lot of relationships with unbelievers. First of all, it's because a lot of my relational energy is invested in you all. And secondly, when you meet people out and about and they say, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. (laughs) That shuts it right down. (laughs) I don't really want to talk a whole lot, right? There's a little bit of a stigma. So about a month ago, we invited a family who's not from the United States over to our home along with a mutual friend. And over dinner on our back deck, we, we uh, asked them about their experience here in the States and we learned about their home culture and uh, we ate good food and we laughed and we watched our kids, uh, little kids interacting and, and being crazy and it was a really delightful day. Candidly, this was our first time that we've ever had a Muslim in our home. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to make a friend. I really am. And what struck me after reflecting on our time together is that we approach the world with very different worldview. We have some different values. And yet, I hope that what they saw on display in our home was something that was beautiful and winsome. And I hope that they felt valued and honored by our time together, those few hours on our back deck. And the fact that the husband, on his way out our door, asked for my cell phone number so that we could continue building a friendship tells me that I have to lean in and press into good word and deed and living winsomely and carefully before him. You see, good works are the outpouring of the faith that's already within us. So if the Holy Spirit is changing us, the faith we've already embraced then it's going to change how we view and treat people it's going to be different the new testament is full of this we studied ephesians earlier this year before quarantine shut everything down for a bit and in ephesians 2 paul reminds his writers that we his readers that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works paul reminded titus In Titus chapter 2, to be a model of good works, that we are to be a people who are zealous for good works and devoted to good works. So who was Peter quoting in 1 Peter 2.12 when he was writing this verse? He was quoting what he heard from Jesus himself. You'll remember the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter was just teaching the church what he heard Jesus say. Tim Keller planted and pastored Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He pastored for many years. No doubt, New York City, Manhattan is an antagonistic society uh, to the gospel. Difficult to live as salt and light there but he wrote an article that I think is so applicable to to what we're studying here this morning, what we're hearing and learning. He writes, Peter expects the gospel to always be highly offensive and never be embraced and accepted by the world. Unlike the models that call for withdrawal from the world and are highly pessimistic about influencing culture, Peter expects that some aspects of Christian faith will be highly attractive to any pagan culture shaping and influencing people to ultimately praise God, as we see in 1 Peter 2, that they will praise God. The classic example of being resident aliens is in Jeremiah 29, in which the Jews are called to both keep their distinct religious identity, not assimilating culturally to the Babylonians, and yet to be deeply involved in the economic and cultural life of Babylon, seeing to its peace, prosperity, and the common good. I keep thinking about Daniel. Daniel was plucked from his home in Israel and he was exiled to Babylon to spend his days there. And God was very favorable to Daniel. He gave him great power and influence, even in government in the roles that he played. And Daniel gave God his fidelity and his faithfulness. And And you'll likely remember the account of when he was wrongfully accused and he was thrown into the den of lions. We tell our kids this story. And he ended up there only after his jealous contemporaries concocted and finagled this law about praying only to the king. And that's what led him to be thrown in because truth be told, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. In fact, in the whole of Scripture, we don't read anything that any specific sin or mistake that Daniel made. And I'm not claiming that he was perfect, because he wasn't. He had a sin nature just like us, all humans do. But for whatever reason, God didn't feel like it was important for us to, to focus in on, on Daniel's sin the way that so many other people, uh, we, we are uh, spectators of, of the mistakes that they made. And so I think, I think God wants to hold up Daniel as a model to us to live in the way that Peter was writing to this, that he had influence around unbelievers, that he was faithful to the Lord, that he lived winsomely. Your life is your witness. It is, it's your witness. And as resident aliens here, we should expect persecution and opposition. We should expect an increasingly hostile society. And yet the New Testament is just filled with examples of where persecution and adversity came and the church multiplied. The gospel went into places that it didn't exist before because there was difficulty. And genuine faith blossomed, not on the sidelines, excuse me, not in the centers of power, but it blossomed more often than not when it was experiencing persecution and And so if you're facing anxiety about this moment in our our country and what the coming months and years will come, and I encourage you, fear not. Don't worry. Christ watches over his bride. He knows what's going on. He actually ordains these types of things for us, for our faith to be genuine and for us to grow in our faithfulness to him. And we're wrestling not, remember, against people. This isn't a flesh and blood thing. There are cosmic powers and realities that are at work. Remember, we have the flesh that we're warring with in our own souls, but then there's also the devil and the forces of darkness. And in Ephesians, Paul reminds us of this fact and that God gives us everything that we need to stand and to stand firm. That is the armor of God. So a couple questions as we we finish up, some self-reflection maybe for later today or early this week. Do you embrace your identity as a resident alien today in our country, our world? Is that your identity? Do you know that? Are you okay being comfortable in that because God's called you to something? What about winning the battle inside? How do you need to combat and fight against the passions of your flesh? Where is God calling you to step out in love and good deeds. Who is God calling you to? Sometimes we think about the what first. What am I supposed to do? Outreach, I gotta do something. Actually, I encourage you to pray and discern who is God calling you to? You likely have relationship already with people. So who's God calling you to? And live winsomely and beautifully and creatively and missionally in that context and pray that God would visit them in His grace. I'm moved by a story that I read this week about a gathering in 1805, the summer of 1805, a gathering of Native Americans in upstate New York. A New England missionary had traveled to upstate New York and was doing some, uh, some preaching in that area and he uh, presented the Christian message to these chiefs and warriors that had gathered together. And it's been said it was an excellent presentation of the gospel and its life-changing power. And after the the sermon, one of the leaders got up and gave a response to the missionary. And he said this, Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbor. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. Man, your life is your witness. There are people who watch. God, help us to be a people who says, nope, we're going to just watch. We're not sure about this. Not sure about these people. God, help us to be a people that when they speak against us, because they're always going to find something to speak against, our ways are not their ways. God's ways are not their ways. We live in a a place that's not our own. So God help us to be the type of people who live before the unbelieving world such that they say one day, I praise God because of the influence, the witness, the life, the love that was shown to me by fill in the blank. They'll know that we're Christians by our love, the old song says. Heavenly Father, We recognize, we lean lean into the fact that our life is our witness. We certainly can't do it ourselves. It's only by your Spirit's work and power that we can thrive, that we can stand, that we can fight the passions of our flesh, that, that we can make much of Jesus in a hostile world. And while I don't, Pray adversity for us uh, because it's difficult. I actually do. I, I do pray that we would know some difficulty so that our faith might be genuine and we would grow. Pray that you would allow us this week and in the coming weeks to encounter people who are different from us, who have a different set of values, and that because of who we are secure in you and because of what you are doing in our hearts, that out of the overflow of that, our mouths would speak. Help us to be fluent in the gospel and the good news, connecting it to the world. Thank you for the opportunity to live and to serve and to reach Farmington Hills and West Bloomfield and Livonia, Berkeley, Bloomfield Hills, Commerce Township, all these different places, Southfield, Redford, all these places that you have called us to. So help us to live carefully as missionaries, putting our hope in Jesus, the faithful one. We pray all of this in faith, expectantly, looking for you to move and to work first in us and then in the world. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together.